Imagine That Studios presents Tales from the Archives, Volume 5 The official anthology of the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences Inyam Interim by Michael Spence Part 2 Sparrow Recording Cylinder 5, Case 1896-0317, UKKS. Interview with detainee Alexander Knott, spelled K-N-O-T-T, operative of the House of Usher. Interview conducted by Ian W. Croyd, DSC. Initial attempt to obtain data concerning Usher mindsets. You passed the evaluation or perhaps I should say, initiation, which left your colleague Edmund Jasper dead. Then what happened? Well, insofar as they affect my story, as you put it, the next few years contained little of note. I learned more about the Light of Helios, the Ministry Peculiar Occurrences, the Illuminati, and other such adversaries. I carried out various missions for Usher, a courier run here, an assassination there, a bomb thrown into a crowd elsewhere, you know the routine. More than a few of these were conducted together with Persephone Lake, to whom my attraction had grown even stronger over time. In between missions, I worked in our development and design division, re-engineering existing weaponry to improve efficiency, range, load capacity, and so forth. As a private project, I even discovered flaws in our ethergate theory concerning orientation in time as well as space, and determined how to alter our current applications accordingly. I was assigned quarters in London, and reported to a series of senior officers who either were rotated through the stations or replaced deceased predecessors. I never knew which. Fortunes of war and all that. Through all this, I adhered to my principle of searching for the opponent with an advantage in weaponry or strategy. To my relief, the advantage continued with us, especially with Usher's acquisition of electroporter technology. What had seemingly become routine took an abrupt turn four weeks ago when I reported to my current supervisor on Fleet Street. It was midday, and the clatter of those assembling the next edition distracted everyone from watching me as I approached the managing editor's office. Inside, to my surprise, I found him chatting with Miss Lake, whom I had not seen in at least half a year. "'Good afternoon, Mr. Knott,' he said. "'I believe you have not yet been sent on a retrieval mission during your service with us, and furthermore, all your missions have been here in Britain. Is that correct?' "'It is.' I had investigated a scientist's work on the Orkney Islands off the coast of Scotland, but that was the farthest I had travelled to date. I had never crossed the English Channel. And this should add to your repertoire. He proceeded to talk about an item rumoured to exist somewhere in Europe. Its form was unknown, but it was credited with spectacular deeds. One such rumour claimed that it had healed an elderly man of smallpox, another that it had enabled a man to escape from a firing squad and return to his home country to claim the throne. Yet another, that its possessor uncovered a plot by relatives to kill her and steal her inheritance. In short, this item appeared to make the one who held it unstoppable. Naturally, the House of Usher wanted it. 
Little is known, said the supervisor, except that it is made of wood. That's all we've got. One would expect to find a weapon of such power at the focus of at least one war in its history, even sparking generations of conflict. And yet such does not appear to be the case. Apart from the occasional miracle story, its history is remarkably quiet. Still, we expect your research skills to be equal to the task of finding it, after which you and Miss Lake are to proceed to its location and secure it for us. I looked at Persephone. Somewhere in Europe, eh? She shrugged, giving me a half-hearted grin. If it helps, said the supervisor, you may only need to examine the last twenty centuries. Additional rumors say that what we are looking for is a fragment of the cross. Well, now, I had no need to ask which cross he had in mind. If indeed it was part of the structure whereupon the Nazarene was put to death, Miraculous occurrences might go without saying. I could also see how Usher would want it either used on our behalf or placed under wraps. I glanced again at Persephone and, at her nod, said, Very well, we shall bring it back. As we left his office, my supervisor clapped me on the shoulder and said, Good luck, Alec. I understand the house is awarding only one promotion this year. Succeed at this and I suspect it will be yours. He returned to his desk, and Persephone put her lips close to my ear and murmured, It could indeed. Imagine that. I went back to the libraries that had become my second home in London, launching into a search through as many historical accounts as I could find of the area enclosing the Near East, the Balkans, and Eastern and Central Europe, prepared to expand the search radius as necessary. I expected the search to last for months. It took less than a week. By then, I was confident that I knew the area in which we would find the relic, if relic it indeed were, and even the one on whose property we might find it. So it was that Persephone Lake and I, in the guise of a wealthy couple on tour, embarked on a journey that would take us by train to Paris, to Munich, to Ulm, and finally, by boat along the Danube, to Ingolstadt. Ingolstadt where some of the most remarkable scientific work of the century had taken place, but also the birthplace of the Illuminati, a most formidable opponent of the House of Usher. To keep a narrow silhouette, as it were, we entered the city as part of a small group of tourists, enjoying the many sights along the celebrated river. The next morning we engaged a carriage to take us a short distance out of the city to a small private estate, I had not communicated with its owner. For one thing, I did not want to alert anyone who might be watching the post, and for another, if we were to succeed in our mission, we had best move quickly, taking the talisman and leaving for home as swiftly as possible. Persephone carried a pistol in her handbag, while I carried my weapon and other things in a bag at my feet. The carriage arrived at the estate. Before it could stop, Persephone pointed first to a hedge, then to an oak tree, and said, Movement. She told the driver to take us in a circuit of the grounds. As it started to regain speed, she said, Keep going, gave me a kiss on the cheek, and hopped down behind a low wall. I continued with the carriage as it toured the modest but carefully tended land, and when we reached the house again, she was waiting for us at the gate. Anything? I said. Two, she replied, 
and handed me two familiar lapel pins, each featuring an open eye at the apex of a pyramid. They were studying the house, not the grounds. Perhaps reconnaissance, possibly invasion. She gave a brief chuckle. Plan cancelled. We turned in at the entrance and stopped some fifty feet from the door. I looked for hints of sentries or any other defensive preparations. To my surprise, there were none. The grounds were quiet, the place seemingly unguarded. Had someone else besides the neutralized Illuminati operatives anticipated us and seized our prize first? We climbed back into the carriage and proceeded up the drive to the main entrance. It was undamaged by any intruder. Perhaps the house had been invaded from the rear. If so, we would find out soon enough, and we were prepared to meet opponents. As we had agreed beforehand, Persephone took up station at the front door, keeping watch for anyone approaching. I took my bag, transferring my weapon to an inner pocket, and prepared to open the front door. Before I could touch the handle, the door swung inward. "'May I take your things, sir?' The man appeared suddenly at my side. He was of middle age, dressed in household livery. Its royal blue color was faded in spots, and one elbow had been repaired. But the repair was subtle, and everything was crisply pressed. I offered my hat, but kept the bag. "'Good morning. Is Herr Dr. Eisenberg in?' Another voice came from beyond the doorway. "'I am indeed. Welcome.' To the door came a man such as I had never before encountered— Nearly half again as tall as I, he possessed both physique and physiognomy to terrify any prospective invaders. But despite his odd features, including eyes tinged with yellow and a translucency of skin such as I had only seen in those of advanced age, he moved with a vigor and grace, suggesting power under careful restraint. Certainly a name that meant Iron Mountain suited him. I could see why the Illuminati would approach his estate with extreme care. He gave me a half-bow and said to the servant, Thank you, Franz. Bring some refreshment to the study. Turning back to me, he said, Would you come with me, please? The young lady may come, too, if she wishes. I glanced at Persephone, who responded with a tiny shake of her head. We should stay with the plan. I followed Dr. Eisenberg, senses alert to the possibility of ambush. There was none. We arrived eventually at a door that he opened, and I followed him inside. It was as much a workplace as Mr. Roderick's office had been, but with far more emphasis on comfort in its modest furnishings and decor, a place not only for working, but also to be enjoyed. Along with the desk, two substantial armchairs facing each other across a coffee table, and a larger work table, the room held a sideboard, upon which Franz placed a tray holding a decanter and several glasses. I waited for Eisenberg to choose one and pour for me, so that he might administer a poison, or at least a soporific. Instead, he simply indicated the tray with his open hand, inviting me to choose a glass for myself. I poured two drinks, sipped one, rather a good Irish whiskey it turned out, and handed him the other. My host took one of the two chairs. I suspected you might be arriving today. Please have a seat. I sat at the front edge of the other chair, ready to move quickly if necessary to avoid capture or to overpower Eisenberg. 
With a calm I did not feel, I said, I noticed that the place was unusually quiet, at least compared to my experience. I was afraid that the house might have been assaulted. He chuckled. No, we are all quite well. If it appeared to you that our guard was down, well, that is because we were expecting you. Expecting us? You you know who we are? Who you are? <laughs> I haven't the faintest idea. What you are? Yes, indeed. What we are? I must admit to some shock at your welcome. Compared to the values of most societies on the continent and in England, I believe I would be categorized as the villain. Hm. As you wish. It is not material. He rose from the chair and opened the door to a cabinet behind it. From the cabinet he withdrew something wrapped in a heavy cloth and laid it on the coffee table between us. Resuming his seat, he said, Here it is. The bundle was slightly shorter than my forearm. Resting my fingers on the thin pipe in my pocket, I waited for him to reveal a weapon, whereupon I would shoot him before he had the chance to trigger it. Rather than unwrap the bundle himself, however, he slid it towards me, inviting me to do so. I reached for it, on guard against a booby trap. I lifted one corner of the cloth, laying it on the table, then slowly unrolled the remainder, reasoning that a motion-activated explosive would have detonated by now. Inside the bundle was a wooden sculpture of a bird. Unlike the raven from the Usher Training Center, it was made of a pale wood, almost completely white. The style of carving was smooth rather than rugged. Rather than attacking like a predator, the bird sat as if in a nest, its wings folded and its feet tucked up underneath. I turned it over, examining it from different angles. On its breast, over its heart, was a blotch of red, as if from an unhealed wound. A narrow, tapering hole penetrated inward from the center of that mark, allowing one to see that it was no mere surface coloration, but a stain penetrating deep into the wood. "'What kind of bird is it?' I asked. "'I believe it is a sparrow, in repose. Wounded, but it has found a place of shelter.' As I contemplated the red stain, I found myself swathed in an unexpected tranquillity. It was nothing like the elation of having reached one's objective. I knew that feeling well, and was surprised not to feel it now. Nor was it the appreciation of beauty, beautiful as the silent, wounded bird was. Instead, the sensation was like what I imagined a sentient engine might feel, if it had been running with a continually open throttle and was at long last permitted to idle. Abruptly, the chair, the sculpture, Dr. Eisenberg, and the rest of the study vanished. I stood in darkness, the kind that precedes daybreak. The space around me was preternaturally clear. A hint of light appeared around me. I turned and saw that it came from a radiant line hanging in mid-air, beginning at the horizon and ending at my back. I turned again to see before me an array of lines, each running outward and splitting into two or three, at rare times even four branches, continuing outward to repeat the process again and again. 
At each branching point, each node, a moving image indicated an event of some kind. Some of the participants I recognized, and some of the settings and actions were comprehensible. Signing a document, for example, or turning a wheel, or firing a weapon. But most were not. And now even those I did understand have left no clear memory behind. As I watched, a distant branch dimmed to gray and then went dark, together with its node and the identifying image, leaving a single line where there had been more than one. Another set of alternate branches faded to black, and then another. Little by little, the diagrammed tree was pruned until only two lines remained, each running to the pale horizon and ending in some distant future event. I gazed at the two branches, and something that was not an audible voice, nor were its words in any language I could now repeat, spoke to me. It said, The choice is yours. Now. Nearly two minutes passed as I contemplated the lines, wondering at the diagram and the possibility of the future developing from a simple binary selection. But the voice spoke truly. I dared not delay. I took a breath and chose. Instantly I found myself back in the study, the wooden sparrow cradled in my hands. I expected to struggle against bindings, but found none. Dr. Eisenberg still sat in the chair facing me. He had not taken advantage of my trance to imprison me. Completely bewildered, I could only ask why. He laughed. Why would I do that? I said earlier that you would probably consider me a villain. In point of fact, we came here today to take the bird from you by force. Lethal force, if need be. Really? He appeared to take that in stride. That would indeed fit the villain role. But as I said, I knew what we are. Those two sentences did not fit together. You knew I was an antagonist, and yet... Are you saying you know me to be something other than an antagonist? Yeah, you are my successor. At my bewildered stare, he continued, For seventy-some years I have guarded this sculpture, and now it is time for me to hand it over to its next custodian. You. He tilted his head and regarded me. You were abstracted for a moment just now. Did you perchance see something like a darkness leading toward dawn in unidentified space, where a myriad branching roads spread abroad and gradually vanished, becoming only two? I affirmed that I had. I saw it in 1822. After I left my dying father three years earlier, I traveled in Europe for a time, still burdened with the guilt of my past actions. I stopped in Kiev, where I met a nobleman named Kirilenko, from whom I received the sculpture. Some time later, it confronted me with a choice, and if I may say so, the shape of my life was quite transmuted. I returned to Ingolstadt, to a university somewhat altered by the Karlsbad decrees. While I dare say my father would not have done well under the new Zeitgeist, his teachers gave me quite a warm reception. In fact, 
Herr Dr. Kremper and Herr Waldmann were pleased to have me join them in their research, even though I lacked a university education, at least at that point. On the untimely passing of Herr Dr. Kremper's laboratory assistant, they arranged for me to assume his identity, and so Anton Eisenberg lived on. He took another sip of the whiskey, and I found myself intrigued by the play of the muscles beneath his skin. Under their tutelage, I earned my doctorate, and have spent the time since then working with, among other things, the theories that gave rise to my birth. But I knew that I would remain here until my successor arrived to receive the sculpture from my hand. It seems the process of my birth made my body more resistant to age than that of others. Or, if it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, then perhaps this flesh has undergone its full allotment of death already. Not that I am complaining, mind you. My work at the university is a continual source of wonder, and, mirabile dictu, I have even learned to teach. Of course, he said with a little laugh, my stature tends to discourage careless or slothful students. No doubt. The sculpture, I am told that many consider it to be part of the true cross. He chuckled. I have heard that as well. Unlike the many, however, I live in a university town. This wood has been examined by the most skilled xylologists and dendrologists in the area. You won't be reading their findings because none of them has published, possibly out of embarrassment. Not one could identify the wood, whereas one could reasonably assume that crucifixion, a regrettably common event in first-century Palestine, would use an equally common species of tree. Not to mention that over the past two millennia, hunters of sacred relics, or should I say, their suppliers, would by now undoubtedly have reduced the true cross to widely scattered splinters. I pointed to the pierced stain over the bird's heart, which makes this feature all the more curious. I can see how many would think it a nail print. He agreed. I suspect that what we see is the work of a woodcarver who, on discovering how deep the stain went into the wood, decided to display that depth. It may even have inspired the bird shape itself. No, I am convinced that this wood is of a different tree entirely. Again, the kinds of wood known in the first century are common even today. They are attacked by birds and insects. They age, die, and rot. I believe this wood, by contrast, has existed undamaged by nature for many millennia, and its tree was alive and strong before the rules of biology and botany changed. I stared at him. That would mean... I did not complete the sentence. Exactly. You are holding the only known remnant of the Edenic tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That stain, I suspect, represents the mortal wound dealt to the human race. But how would that give rise to the stories of miracles, the rescues, the healings? 
These were people who had made their choice. I believe that events flowed together, if you will, to ensure that the choices once made would be carried out however adverse to circumstances. You are aware how few things under the sun are utterly certain, no? Almost always there is the possibility, however small, that things might turn out otherwise. If the chosen path requires it, then, however improbable it might be, that outcome will result. He sat back in the chair. This tree was the scene of an epic choice, a choice that has resonated down the centuries to this day. The wood, likewise, has never rotted or aged. That began with the generation of plants that followed it. You, my young friend, hold in your hands the locus of decision. I made my choice to accept custody of it and keep it safe, and a confluence of circumstances has ensured that its safety and I were preserved. You have your own decision. I will not stand in your way. It is time. If you intend to kill me, I shall not resist. I have also instructed Franz and the rest of the staff not to hinder your departure. I have carried out my mission. I have been blessed with purpose and peace of mind, and whereas my father occupied himself with the passions between a man and a woman, passions that nearly destroyed me as well as him, since his death I have known something far greater. I have known genuine friendship. I rose to my feet, my heart filled with an emotion I could not name. Contentment? Gratitude? Perhaps even anticipation? It was, I decided, the feeling of a cog placed in the clockwork it had been engineered to fit. I hope you will count me among your friends, sir. I said, thank you. The large man smiled. I am still curious. How did you find me? My eyes fell on the sculpture. I was once in the Orkney Islands investigating stories of your father's work there. It occurred to me that you might still live and return to your birthplace, and as I studied the lore concerning this, I held up the bird. Its history appeared to converge on the Bavarian shores of the Danube. I decided it was worth the attempt. Dr. Eisenberg offered his hand, and I took it. I wish you and my father could have met, he said. Victor was a passionate man, but ultimately a poor scientist. He strove to discover new worlds, new territories, but once he had found them, he could not distance himself from himself enough to truly understand them, let alone accept them. He could have learned from you. We returned to the entrance. I introduced Persephone to Eisenberg, and as he and Franz watched, we prepared to return to our carriage at the gate. A short distance from the door, Persephone turned to me and murmured, "'Congratulations, Alec. Now hand me the relic, if you please.' Pressure against my side caused me to look down to see her pistol against my ribcage, suggesting that the if-you-please was but a formality. "'All right,' I said slowly. "'I must ask you to explain.' She gave me a pitying look. "'Were you not listening earlier?' 
The House of Usher is offering only one promotion this year. I want it. And you think killing me will get it for you? She snickered. The house is competitive, is it not? Killing you isn't the objective, but you remember how things work. We're not afraid to waste talent if it means we get what we want. I said nothing, a wash in a flood of unwanted memories. What the house wants is the relic. I shall bring it to them. Our supervisor made no promises. He only stated the likelihood, and he made that statement to me, not you. She weighed that aside. You are a candidate. If I defeat you, I take your place on the ladder. That's simple enough. In any event, I shall take my chances. What could I say? She was true to her principles. The only certainty in life is betrayal, she had said. Deciding that she would therefore not consider my next move inconsistent, I pulled the slim tube from my pocket and pressed the firing stud. The pellet struck her in the shoulder, and a floral scent filled the air around us. She laughed. You're shooting me with perfume? <laughs> the laugh died in mid-breath, and she fell in a silent heap to the pavement. I stepped away from her and resumed breathing as a breeze carried off the remainder of the sedative-laced fragrance. Putting up a hand to assure those at the door that all was well, I set down my bag, removed eight small modules, and set them at regular intervals around Persephone. I rechecked the dials on the eighth module and pressed the activator. The familiar blue glow appeared around the perimeter of the octagon and flowed in towards the center, surrounding her unconscious form. She sank beneath it as if towards the bottom of the body of water that was her namesake. Farewell, lady of the lake, I thought. It seemed better, then. Give my regards to King Hades. I had done and redone my calculations with the utmost care, blessing the memory of Edmund Jasper, so that she would reappear on the shores of what were once called the Sandwich Islands, but which now owed their allegiance to the United States. Removed from the House of Usher's direct influence, she could consider whether she would return to it or seek a way out. Either way, I wanted the choice to be hers. Returning to Dr. Eisenberg and Franz, I withdrew the pins Persephone had procured. We encountered two Illuminati agents on the grounds earlier. Should their absence raise questions, I handed Franz the sigils together with my corresponding token, an enameled black bird with talons extended. You apprehended the operative from the House of Usher, who was responsible, and dealt with him. Franz smiled and bowed. With a final farewell, I boarded the carriage to return to the city. And there my tale ends. I needed to act quickly, so once I reached the city's edge, I dismissed the carriage, reassembled my modified ether gate, and returned to London and the House of Usher's station on Thornhill Crescent. Where you were captured. Where, I prefer to say, we rendezvoused. During my research, I discovered the station had been taken a week ago by ministry agents. I am here, and as far as the House of Usher knows, I disappeared in Ingolstadt, leaving behind a deserted hotel suite and some unclaimed luggage. So now I am to believe that you simply walked into the open arms of the ministry and handed them the sculpture? Believe it or disbelieve it, as you will. It is the truth. 
I am giving them the sparrow as a gift. But why? I didn't and do not remember the future consequences of my choice, but I did know that this would be my next step. Besides, if Dr. Eisenberg's evaluation of the sparrow is true, and humanity did indeed suffer a fall, then I infer that the other half of the story is true, too. And, to be frank, Dr. Croyd, repentance and redemption look quite desirable to me. I made my choice, events flowed together, and here I am. I see. And your vigilance for the more powerful weapon and ingenious plan? Hmm, a good question. Let us say I find myself compelled to redefine both mysterious ways and all that. Huh, as I recall, he's even been known to command the ravens. Ah, in that case, I wish you well, and <laughs> welcome, Alexander, not of Usher. End of interview. Respectfully submitted, Ian W. Croyd, DSC, Information Procurement and Synthesis. So now the sparrow has come to you. You do realize he could have made up the whole story. It's quite possible. Certainly the tale is fantastic enough. In its favor, though, we do have three pieces of evidence. First, Dr. Sound is well acquainted with the Iron Mountain of Ingolstadt. He's another consultant of our little list for cases that involve reanimating the dead. Really? Hm, intriguing. And second? Second, the file also contains an internal memorandum from America's Office of the Supernatural and Metaphysical. Uh, here we are. Chief Highfield, I'm uncertain whether this falls into our jurisdiction or that of Dr. Sound's crew. Three days ago, various St. Patrick's Day celebrations on the beach at Waikiki were interrupted by the appearance of an unknown young woman, seemingly from out of nowhere. No ships of air or sea have docked in the past four days. She appears to be a British subject, but adamantly refuses to give her name. Pending your decision, I shall keep her under our watchful eye. Respectfully, Makanui McGarrett, Awesome Pacific Operations. The dates match. <laughs> that certainly lends weight to the story. So, now it looks as though you are the Sparrow's new custodian. What choices do you have to make? I don't know. I've thought about it, and I still don't know. I would have thought my significant life decisions had been made already. I defied my father to join the ministry, then I met you, my love, and there I would say that events are flowing together splendidly. But I have yet to experience that moment of preternatural clarity of which the young man spoke. Perhaps there is a momentous decision yet to come. Considering all that has happened in the past few years, <laughs> I shouldn't be surprised. Interesting that young Mr. Barrowclaw's life should have taken such a turn back then. Such a gifted man, and yet his talents went to the House of Usher. That, I'm afraid, is not how things should have gone. And on that, here's the third piece of evidence. Another cross-referenced case file to this one. Look at this section. Hmm. Agent Joseph Frost? That's one I don't know. Agent Frost was assigned to abduct or, if necessary, 
eliminate two high-level members of the House of Usher who were operating under deep cover. He succeeded, for the most part, but not without problems. First, the man's cane had a signaling device in the handle. It's in the box there. That's what he was reaching for, not a sword. We think he managed to send a partial distress call before he was killed. And second, Agent Frost didn't count on their son being present. When the Ministry tried to locate young Richard and explain the situation, he had already gone to ground. I suppose it's no surprise that Usher found him soon after. They surely wasted no time. Where is his mother now? I must confess we have no idea. It may be that you were unfamiliar with Agent Frost because he wasn't that memorable an agent. At combat, he was reasonably competent. At other tasks, such as setting Ethergate parameters, <laughs> he had his shortcomings. And now, a second chance. For Richard and for the Ministry. Could there be a more precious gift? Theme music composed and performed by Alex White. Find out more at thegearheart.com. For more from the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences, visit ministryofpeculiaroccurrences.com to order Operation Endgame and the Curse of the Silver Pharaoh. This podcast is protected by the Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, share-alike 3.0 license. For more information, visit creativecommons.org. Tales from the Archives. An Imagine That Studios production. I'm T. Morris. And I'm Philippa Ballantyne. Thank, Thank you, you for, for listening. listening.